the book of Zechariah here, it's really amazing how much uh, we learn about uh, the coming Messiah um, here in Zechariah. So a couple of these I'm going to go through quickly, and then uh, we'll spend some more time on a couple of focused topics. Okay, last time we spent almost the whole Bible study on Zechariah 3. Remember talking about um, Joshua the priest, Satan the accuser. Okay, and we didn't read on, but it continues here uh, in Zechariah 3.8. Listen then, Joshua, you who are the high priest, and listen, you fellow priests of his, you that are the sign of a good future. I will reveal my servant, who is called the branch. Okay, and capitalized here. And it's interesting combining these two images, the servant and the branch. And I won't just list all of the verses for this, but of course we have many, especially in Isaiah, passages about the servant, suffering servant, and the branch is something that's also quoted many times in the Old Testament as a, as a messianic um, prediction. Uh, this is repeated in Zechariah 6, that the man who is called the branch will flourish where he is and rebuild the Lord's temple. And again, this had an immediate application, okay, referring to uh, Zerubbabel, the governor, but again, I would say, like we've seen many times in prophecy, um, a much more significant um, later um, fulfillment. Okay, and just on this here, what does this mean that the branch, if this is referring to Jesus, will flourish where he is and rebuild the Lord's temple? Of course, Jesus never had a building constructed, didn't oversee a project like that. What does that mean? He will rebuild the Lord's temple. And we'll spend, I think, a lot of time on this when we get into the New Testament, just about the temple, that we are the temple. Okay, that the, there's, a, there's a spiritual temple. We have all these physical buildings in the Old Testament, but the New Testament seems concerned about uh, rebuilding the spiritual temple. Just one verse on this in First Peter. Come to the Lord, the living stone, rejected by people as worthless, but chosen by God as valuable. Come as living stones. Okay, so we are stones, built. Obviously, this is symbolic. Uh, built to Jesus, and let yourselves be used in building the spiritual temple. So that's, that's the temple that uh, Jesus came to build. Okay, so the, the combination here of the servant and the branch in Zechariah, uh, just to quote a few other places where this is mentioned in the Old Testament in Isaiah 11, then a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, a branch from its roots will bear fruit, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and it continues on, uh, really a wonderful passage there in Isaiah 11. And in Jeremiah 23, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely. It shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So it, it's interesting to, to try to put all of this together um, here about the branch, but I'm not, not going to spend much time on that one because I want to talk about some of the others. Um, when we uh, went through Isaiah last year, we spent um, a whole Bible study on the suffering servant in Isaiah. But for me, this is the most moving uh, the most telling prediction of the, the coming Messiah. And it's the end of Isaiah 52 and going into um, chapter 53, where the Lord says, My servant will succeed in his task. He will be highly honored. Many people were shocked when they saw him. He was so disfigured that he hardly looked human. But now many nations will marvel, marvel at him, and kings will be speechless with amazement. It's interesting to consider who those kings are. But they will see and understand something they had never known. Okay, and don't stop reading here when you come to the end of Isaiah 52. What will we see and understand that we had never known 
And you just read on, and, and I'll just give you the first few verses of Isaiah 53, but I think this is saying, we will learn something about God that we could not have imagined, could not have conceived of. Um, and this is it. This is the message translation, so rather free paraphrase here, but continues on. Who believes what we've seen and heard? Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. Again, who could imagine that God's saving power would look like this? Okay, completely unthought of that the Messiah, that the coming one would look like this. Okay, but there we have it uh, in the scary Old Testament. We have this wonderful prediction about the coming Messiah. <clears throat> okay, but this one I want to spend a little more time on. We skip forward to Zechariah 9. Okay, and we read, rejoice, rejoice, people of Zion, shout for joy, you people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He comes triumphant and victorious, but humble and riding on a donkey. Okay, and of course, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, and, and uh, I think for most of my life, that's what I had taken away from this. Look, there it is, he rode a donkey, it's predicted. Okay, but I think there's something, why do we add the word here, humble, riding on a donkey? Isn't this supposed to give us some clue that the coming Messiah, there'd be something about his character, humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, Okay, the Lord says, I will remove the war chariots from Israel and take the horses from Jerusalem. That would kind of be a contrast to a donkey, wouldn't it? It would have come on a horse if he came to bring war. The bows used in battle will be destroyed. Your king will make peace among the nations, and he will rule from sea to sea, and so on. But just on this here, again, we just consider the contrast here, that the, the coming one would not come on a horse, again, which we more associate with a battle imagery and war, but would come humble, riding on a donkey. And it's true that this had some significance. I just put 1 Kings 138 here because when David wanted to anoint Solomon as king, he put him on his donkey and he entered the, the city. All right, so there was, there was uh, I think, when the, you know, when the Pharisees saw Jesus entering Jerusalem and all the people shouting and praising God, um, I, I, they certainly knew the significance of this um, historically. But again, the way Jesus lived his life and the way he would became king, in a sense, um, riding in a donkey and then finally dying a few days later, uh, says something about uh, the character. And that's labeled for us there in Zechariah. So just on that, uh, that humility theme, uh, this is one of the earliest messianic predictions here in Deuteronomy 18. And it's quite an interesting one because... The prediction here, Moses is saying that God will send you a prophet like me from among your own people, and you are to obey him. On the day that you were gathered about Sinai, you begged not to hear the Lord speak again or to see his fiery presence anymore because you were afraid you would die. So the Lord said to me, you notice the people are afraid of God in all of his glory. So God said, they have made a wise request. I will send them a prophet like you from among their own people. Okay, so that the coming one... Here, and you know, again, the Jews, no question, this is a messianic prediction here. The coming one would be like Moses. Okay, so the question is, um, what, what kinds of things, what do we know about Moses? 
what kind of a person was Moses? Do we have verses that say Moses was like this? Yeah, and most of you are nodding here that in Numbers, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on earth. And I always like to think who wrote the book of Numbers, of course. But, um, you know, it's in parentheses. Who knows? Maybe someone added that in later. Okay, we know that not all of Moses through Deuteronomy was written by Moses. Of course, the last verse in Deuteronomy describes that Moses died and was buried, and so someone finished off the book. But anyway, this was the, the quality of Moses here, a very humble man. And so if Jesus comes and even declares of himself, I am meek and humble of heart. Okay, what do we do with this? Um, okay, is Jesus fully God? Is he a perfect, exact representation of who God is? Do we incorporate humility into the person of, you know, the eternal Father, God? Do we really incorporate humility? Is that part of our picture of God? Again, Jesus came and said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we we need to, you know, put these kinds of things, um, I think, at the forefront of of our picture of who God is. Humble. Well, so the other aspect here, he will come humble, riding on a donkey. Um, and the, the emphasis on peace in Jesus, so many times, removing war chariots, and that your king will make peace. And what does that mean? Jesus came, he died, and we've had 2,000 years of war. Okay, what does that mean? He will make peace among the nations. And of course, you know, you're familiar with uh, what we sing every year in the in Isaiah 9, that a child is born to us, son is given to us, he will be our ruler, and his titles, he will be called Wonderful, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And uh, this, these really are titles for the Godhead. Who's the Counselor? It's the Holy Spirit, Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Father, and Jesus is here the Prince of Peace. And so, Jesus comes on the stage here, I think the significance of this, fully representing the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. But again, the the emphasis here on on Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And his kingdom will always be at peace. So what does it mean? What peace um, is that referring to? Okay, now let's just imagine. We don't know. Let's just, for a minute, erase the New Testament. Okay, and we don't know what happened. And um, so here's the, the message translation of John 1, 14. God moved into the neighborhood. And let's just imagine, how would we predict God would move into the neighborhood? God comes onto the scene. How is he going to do it? Okay, we know how he did it. He became a baby. But what, just kind of erase that for a minute and just imagine, how would God move into the neighborhood? Um, could have come as a big ball of light, just like he did on Mount Sinai. Okay, and don't you think everyone would have worshipped? Anyone that would not have bowed down, just like they did at Mount Sinai. They were afraid. Okay, but he didn't do it that way. Okay, why didn't he do it that way? I mean, those, all those Pharisees, I mean, they would have been worshipping. Okay, but he didn't do it that way. Could have come, whatever image we have of God. Fully developed man, fiery eyes. I'm God, I'm here. Didn't come that way. Didn't come as a, as a prince who's just suddenly on the stage. Okay, he chose to do it a different way. You know, even when the first king, Saul, was anointed, remember he was head and shoulders above everyone else, and when Samuel said, here's your king, man, everyone was impressed. Now there's a king, 
Look at the size of that guy. Okay, but he didn't come that way. I mean, we just read the passage in Isaiah. There was nothing about him, really, that was attractive, just about his physical appearance that would make him stand out. Okay, and so uh, just, I think it says a lot about the way that he chose to come. Now, we have to leave out this part of this, this uh, picture here, of course, because conceived of the Holy Spirit, but, um, and it's the most, for me, the most mind-boggling thing to consider how God in human form began, okay, and development in utero. I mean, that's uh, just such a remarkable thing. Sorry if I, this gives you bad memories here of uh, neuroembryology, but to consider the development of Jesus, an immature nervous system, a brain at six months in utero that has no folds, it's smooth. Um, can we wrap our minds around that? Here's an EEG of a 26-week uh, immature baby. Immature brain waves, not fully developed. Okay, I mean, what a helpless state. Okay, and then finally, as a baby. And don't you think one point we could make is, you know, who is afraid of a baby? I don't know, anyone who's ever been afraid of a baby. Okay, and isn't that perhaps the point? He had to come in a way so that we wouldn't be afraid, that we would stop and listen and appeal to something other than force and fire and uh, intimidation. Came as a baby. And so, you know, the message here that comes to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, which is really glory to God as high as you can possibly give glory to God, to the highest degree. And notice, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. I mean, isn't the, the way that God chose to come to our world, doesn't that indicate one who is coming, who's not against us, but one who is coming to bring peace? Okay, so we have all these verses here in the New Testament that emphasize peace with the coming of the Messiah. Here's in uh, Colossians 1. God was pleased to have all of himself live in Christ. God was also pleased to bring everything on earth and in heaven back to himself through Christ. And we've read so many times in Revelation, there was war in heaven. That's where the problem started. And here we have, God was pleased to bring everything on earth and in heaven back to himself through Christ. He did this by making peace. There it is again, through Christ's blood, sacrificed on the cross. Once you were separated from God, the evil things you did showed your hostile attitude, again, towards God. But now Christ has brought you back to God by dying in his physical body. So I would interpret this to mean here that we are the ones who have separated ourselves from God. We are the ones that have had a hostile attitude towards God. And God had to first of all make peace in that relationship between us and God. We've, we've had the hostility. Christ brought us back to God through his death and through the revelation of his goodness, his character, his love, and all of that on the cross. And I like the, the Good News Bible, but now by means of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends. Okay, it's a friendship. It's, it's, it's something that's been restored. This is part of the peace. So again, human history has been essentially, even for those who are devoted to God, deep down we're at war with God. I mean, just read the whole Old Testament. What are people always doing? God is always angry, needs to be appeased, needs a lot of blood, needs child sacrifice, and we hope we do all of these things, and then maybe God will be pleased with us. Okay, it all gets turned on its head when Jesus comes, because he comes not to demand sacrifice, but he comes as the sacrifice. Comes to make peace. 
Okay, so again, we are the ones here, even in our religious devotion, who deep down um, are at war with God, are afraid of God, have hostility against God. Okay, often we're just too afraid to say it. Okay, so much more on this in, in Romans 5. Okay, therefore, since we are set right by faith, okay, there's one Greek word in the New Testament that can be translated trust, faith. Okay, we're set right by faith, by trust, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. For since our friendship with God was restored, there it is again, our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. Again, we are the ones who were his enemies. What Jesus did made us his friends again. Okay, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. And the word atonement, you know, we talk a lot about atonement theology, but that word atonement is only found one time in the King James Bible. And that is this verse here in, in Romans 5, which New Living, New Living and many other translations translate that word atonement as the new relationship, the friendship that we have with God. Atonement is at one It is to be brought back together at one with God. Okay, and so I think these words of Jesus said just before he died that I don't want to call you servants any longer because servants don't, do not know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends. I mean, we could have had that in the Old Testament, but frankly, I just think we wouldn't have believed it. Okay, but when God becomes a human and he lives among us and he actually tells us this is actually not the ideal. I don't want to call you servants any longer. Okay, what God really wants to call us is friends. It's believable when Jesus says it. And then he would go on to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father has the same, that same attitude towards us. Okay, so last time I quoted Alden Thompson. And here he kind of sums up. This is what I'm trying to say. But he says it very well here in his book. Uh, when I was growing up, I tended to see the God of the Old Testament as the tough one. Jesus was so gentle, I didn't even see him as God. I knew he was, quote, son of God and divine, but God himself? Not really. Some vivid Old Testament stories and the picture of Jesus pleading with the Father on my behalf had convinced me that only as a last resort would the Father let me slip through the back door into the kingdom. Not until I was a second-year seminary student. I mean, he's someone growing up in a religious home, you know, theological studies in college. Second-year seminary student. Did the truth strike home that Jesus was God in the flesh? Unless you have had such an experience, you can't possibly imagine the joy that flooded my soul. No longer was I haunted by the picture of a distant and reluctant God. If God himself took human flesh and came to earth to save sinners, he must really want me in his kingdom. The whole universe suddenly became a much friendlier place. And for me, I can say that this certainly was the, the transformation for me, to, to see that the one who came... You know, that, that he really was fully God and that we kind of revolve our, all of our theology, all of our thinking uh, around that, that Jesus is the perfect representation of who God is. All right, so then our message, you know, so many times, what is it we're supposed to come to the world with? It is the good news of peace in Isaiah and in Ephesians. All of these things that we're supposed to come with in our shoes are the readiness to announce the good news of peace. Okay, so that message of peace, that God is for us, not against us, 
uh, the message about Jesus Christ. We lump that peace um, with, with the good news. Okay, now just one other, because uh, I'm sure some of you reading around this will see, well, that's not doesn't seem to be the only piece that is described, because uh, there is another piece that is a, a result of that, and that's described in Ephesians 2 and elsewhere. Okay, but I just want to notice where it starts out with. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Now, that's, that's the first thing. We have to first be united to God. Once you are far away from God, just like we read in Colossians and Romans, same thing, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. Okay, now this describing our relationship with others. He's brought peace to us, and he's united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who are far away from him and peace to the Jews who are near to him. So the the other passages emphasized our hostility toward God. And this one emphasizes our hostility towards each other. Both of those were really shattered um, in the Christ event. And I think um, the, the significance here is the Hebrew... Uh, description, and and also in the New Testament, is that you you do not separate our relationship with God with our relationship with other people, okay, that they are one whole. They're not two separate things. Yes, we have a relationship with God, and then, you know, we have some relationship with other people, that that they're described in the Bible as as a holistic one. So you cannot separate your relationship with God with how you treat other people. Again, they're one and the same. And just as some, uh, some evidence of that, in Matthew, where Jesus would say in, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as we forgive others. Okay, does that mean we could somehow earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others? No, this is describing, again, our, how we relate to others. The forgiveness that we extend to others is a reflection of what we are experiencing with God. They're one and the same. Okay, the forgiveness we experience from God has to be in parallel with the, the forgiving attitude that we have with others. You can't have just one and not the other. Or in Matthew 7, do not judge others so that God will not judge you. Okay, does that mean if, that if I am not judgmental to others, that then God will not judge me? Can I earn that by not judging other people? Okay, for God will judge you in the same way you judge others. Okay, and the point here again is just that we see this as a holistic one. Okay, what we experience with God is what translates as in a one-to-one relationship with how we treat others. Okay, we're judgmental, we're harsh towards others. Uh, We are, that's a reflection of what we are experiencing with God at the same time. Again, they're one and the same. And a last verse on this in 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. So notice, whoever loves is a child of God and knows God. It has to work that way. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Okay, so this is a, this is a process. It's not something that happens instantly, but um, the, the peace you know, that we have with God, we experience that with God, uh, that 
breaks down barriers with others at the same time. So the, the amount, the degree of love and friendship we're experiencing with God has to translate into um, how we're treating others. Okay, and the last uh, passage here, Messianic passage, which I'm going to spend a little more time on, is in Zechariah 11, about the two shepherds. And uh, there are some things in here I'm, I'm kind of speculating, okay, so I wouldn't uh, uh, lay down my life on, on every single one of these points, but that's okay to do once in a while. And uh, I think this is kind of interesting here about these uh, two shepherds. Thus the Lord, uh, thus said the Lord my God, talking to Zechariah, be a shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. And this is, seems like kind of a, par- a parable here. Be a shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. Their owners kill them and go unpunished. They sell the meat and say, praise the Lord, we are rich. Even their own shepherds have no pity on them. Okay, so we, we have a bad shepherd that is described throughout this passage. And there isn't much mystery. I mean, who is, the, who is the bad shepherd here? I mean, I think there's an ultimate bad shepherd behind it all. But we have uh, several times in the Old Testament. Here's just one in Ezekiel 34, talking about the leaders. Mortal man denounced the rulers of Israel, prophesied to them, and tell them what I, the sovereign Lord, say to them. You are doomed, you shepherds of Israel. You take care of yourselves, but never tend the sheep. And then I'm afraid most of the, the record here of the Old Testament, when we get into the kings and the leaders... Uh, by and large, they're bad shepherds. Prophets speak lies. People are deceived. Um, and so, you know, this, this would extend, of course, right up until the time of Jesus. Um, and you should read this whole passage here in Matthew 23, where Jesus is really hard on these, uh, the Pharisees. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees are the authorized interpreters of Moses' law, so you must obey and follow everything they tell you to do. Do not, however, imitate their actions, because they don't practice what they preach. They tie onto people's backs loads that are heavy, hard to carry, yet they aren't willing even to lift a finger to help them carry those loads. I think we could safely say that the, the bad shepherd, you know, this, this model would just continue on into the relig- religious leaders in Jesus' time. I mean, it's just so twisted to think that, um, you know, it would be a bad thing to heal someone on the Sabbath. You could actually come to such a point that you would think God would rather you not relieve suffering on the Sabbath. Um, their view about anyone who was poor or sick. If you were poor and sick, you were cursed by God. That's it. You deserved it. I mean, there was, so there was no sympathy for lepers, outcasts of society. And, uh, you know, they were so uh, outraged at Jesus because he seemed to take such an interest in that group of people. Okay, but back to Zechariah here. So we've got bad shepherds. And then we have this description. For I will no longer have pity... On the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord, I will cause them, every one, to fall into the hand of a neighbor, and each into the hand of the king, and they shall devastate the earth, and I will deliver no one from their hand. Now, this is a difficult passage, but remember that God, especially in the Old Testament, is frequently described as doing what he allows to occur. All right, so we have devastation here. We have people deceived by bad shepherds, and God hands them over. There's a, there's a, Devastation going on here. Now, but notice here. So I became the shepherd of the sheep that were to be slaughtered, and also of the oppressed sheep. I took two staffs. One I named Favor, the other I named Unity, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I disposed of the three shepherds, for I had become impatient with them, and they also detested me. And as we read on, it becomes pretty clear that uh, 
Well, at least we like to look back on this and say that this is referring to Jesus. Okay, we can make a better case um, for that later, but um, well, let's say we're to take that position here. Then what, what does this mean? In one month I disposed of the three shepherds. And I don't know exactly what this means, but I'm interested by some of the, uh, the explanations um, here. Um, some have referenced this verse here in Jeremiah, where notice that it's, it's a kind of a totality of rejection. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? My own priest did not know me. The rulers rebelled against me. The prophets spoke in the name of Baal and worshipped useless idols. So again, perhaps this could just represent the totality of rejection of Jesus by religious leaders, priests, prophets, rulers, um, who all completely rejected him. Okay, but regardless of how we interpret that, so we'll keep reading. And then I said to the flock, I will not be your shepherd any longer. Let those die who are to die. Let those be destroyed who are to be destroyed. Those who are left will destroy one another. And then I took the stick called favor and broke it to cancel the covenant which the Lord had made with all the nations. So the covenant was canceled on that day. Those who bought and sold the sheep were watching me, and they knew that the Lord was speaking through what I did. And, you know, this just reminds me, so many times you have such a, like a crowning miracle of Jesus, like he resurrects Lazarus, who was stinking three days in the tomb, and they left the tomb to plot to kill him. Okay, and, you know, they left the cross beating their breasts in sorrow because of, of what they had just seen. I mean, it seemed like there was recognition. This is real. This is supernatural. Uh, we, we can't explain it. We just don't like who this person Jesus is. And so never mind the miracle. Never mind all the evidence. We're going to reject it anyway. And I said to them, if you are willing, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver as my wages. And the Lord said to me, put them in the temple treasury. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, the magnificent sum they thought I was worth, a kind of sarcastic there, and put them in the temple treasury. And then I broke the second stick, the one called unity. And the unity of Judah and Israel was shattered. And of course, the New Testament uh, makes a lot out of this. But it's, it's kind of interesting to consider, sad, really, that what's the significance of 30 pieces of silver? That's the price of a slave. In Exodus 31, if a bull kills a male or female slave, its owner shall pay the owner of the slave 30 pieces of silver. That's what a slave is worth. And the bull shall be stoned to death. Okay, so when Judas betrayed Jesus, you know, and he came and they said, well, what will you give me if I betray Jesus to you? And they counted out 30 silver coins. It's a measly little price, the price of a servant. And um, do you know how, many, uh, how much money it costs, the woman who washed Jesus' feet with perfume? How much? 300 pieces of silver. Okay, so Judas here for just a measly 30 silver coins. And then the Lord said to me, once again, acts the part of a shepherd, this time a worthless one. I have put a shepherd in charge of my flock, but he does not help the sheep that are threatened by destruction, nor does he look for the lost or heal those that are hurt or feed the healthy. Instead, he eats the meat of the fattest sheep and tears off their hoofs. That worthless shepherd is doomed. He has abandoned his flock. War will totally destroy his power. His arm will wither and his right eye will go blind. And um, again, in, in my paradigm, you know, like we think about Judas, who left the upper room, and we have the description of Satan entered into him. 
I think there is an ultimate bad shepherd behind the scene who is working um, against us and, and trying to do all kinds of things against uh, God's plan. So we have worthless shepherds, but there is a, there is a core evil shepherd who is, who is behind it all. But then it, the climax here comes into the next chapter in Zechariah 13. Arise sword against my shepherd, against the man who is my friend. Now, isn't that interesting? Or companion. Um, you know, the kind of the plurality here. It's like in Genesis 1, let us create. It almost seems like we have two people, the description there. In John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And here it almost seems like we have uh, two members of the Godhead here in description or in conversation. Arise sword against my shepherd, against the man who is my friend or my companion. This is apparently a very uh, intimate word in the Hebrew, my friend. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Of course, Jesus um, quoted this. And um, so we... This interesting description here of the shepherd that's used so many times in the Bible. Now, it could be that this uh, in some ways referred to Zechariah. We don't know this part of the story, okay, because God told Zechariah to act this out. We know that this happened to Jeremiah. Okay, we read this in our Bible study on Jeremiah where Jeremiah was like a trusting lamb taken out to be killed. And I did not know that it was against me that they were planning evil things. So we've often seen God's best friends in the Old Testament, the ones who were really faithful, that they're the ones who were like the trusting lambs taken out to be slaughtered. But again, there is an ultimate trusting lamb that we see in, in Jesus Christ. And I, and I think this is what this passage in Zechariah 13 um, is referring to. Okay, so finally, uh, Jesus' words, which I think brings all this together about these shepherds in John uh, 10 and 11. So all others who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. That is, the sheep who know my voice. Okay, unfortunately, many sheep did listen to them. The thief comes only in order to steal, kill, and destroy. I am the good shepherd who is, you notice, what's the distinction? What makes him good? Who is willing to die for the sheep? I am the good shepherd. As the Father knows me, and I know the Father, in the same way I know my sheep, and they know me. Okay, again, the concept of eternal life is to know God. It's cover to cover in the Bible. And the significance here, they know me. They know his character. They trust him. They're friends. There's, there is much behind that description of knowing God. And I am willing to die for them. There are other sheep which belong to me that are not in the sheep pen. I must bring them too. They will listen to my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The Father loves me because I am willing to give up my life in order that I may receive it back again. No one takes my life away from me. I give it up of my own free will. I have the right to give it up and I have the right to take it back. This is what my Father has commanded me to do. Again, there was a division among the people because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon. He's crazy. Why do you listen to him? But others were saying, a man with a demon could not talk like this. How could a demon give sight to blind people? So again, you have Jesus making these uh, you know, frequent references to these passages in the Old Testament. And I would just like to conclude that um, you know, he would go on and tell his disciples in John 15, you know, we only have one command from Jesus. My commandment is this, love one another. And how do we know what love is? Just as I loved you, 
The greatest love you can have for your friends is to give your life for them. And um, so the good shepherd laying down his life, um, I, I think I want to take more out of that than just, you know, look at what Jesus did to save me. I mean, not, not to diminish that in any sense, but notice we are to live that way also. It was not just the price that was paid. It was really to show us the way to live. And the way to live is to love one another just as Jesus loved us. The greatest love you can have for your friends is to give your life for them. In other words, it's self-sacrificial love. That that's, that's really the goal. You want to live a certain way? Be like Jesus. Live in this way. It's not uh, safe by any means. Okay, And just look at the history of John the Baptist and through the whole Bible. It's not safe. But we're not called to live safe lives. We're called to live something that uh, I think is, is quite radical if we really live out um, the kind of love that Jesus had for us. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for these descriptions in the Old Testament that continually direct us to the, the most important moment, most important time in universal history. Please help us to settle more clearly on uh, what exactly you revealed to us make that meaningful for our life today, and help us to, um, uh, just in, in small ways, whatever we can, to inspire us to somehow live out the kind of love that you have. Amen.